I'm Aaron Leonard, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about John Farrow and all the other Pharaohs. Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am your host, Andras Jones, and we're back for another one of our sporadic offerings while I try and figure out where this podcast is going. But I have something pretty special for you today. The week before this interview, I was scrolling social media and saw that Marilyn Moss was going to be talking about her new book, The Pharaohs of Hollywood, Their Dark Side of Paradise, at Larry Edmonds Bookshop, where we recently held the Paul Williams talk and book signing. I'd been hearing about this book for several months. Those who follow the saga of Woody Allen have been awaiting its arrival, assuming it might shed some light on the family environment which shaped Mia Farrow. While the book does provide plenty in the way of context, further expanding the narrow narrative presented by Mia Farrow and the White Farrow children, it does an even better job of introducing us to John Farrow, the director. We get into it all in the interview, so I'm not going to spill it here, but I should say that Marilyn Moss is an accomplished author who has also written biographies about Raoul Walsh. That's Raoul Walsh, The True Adventures of Hollywood's Legendary Director, and George Stevens, Giant, George Stevens, A Life in Pictures, both of which it sounds like she's a little bit more proud of than this one, so check them out. I hope you enjoy our talk and are inspired to explore the films of John Farrow, who, by all accounts, was a very bad man who made very good films. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Oh, hey, sir. Very good. Some of you men know me. The rest are new aboard this ship. I demand three things of a crew. First, Mr. Amazine, look out. <laughs> Mr. Foster, you will seize up his wrists. Aye, aye, sir. Macklin, get a hand, move sharply. Aye, sir. Mr. Amazine, the first mate is in charge of discipline. You hear what I said, Mr. Amazine? Aye, aye, sir. Bellamer. Punishment for attacking an officer is 20 lashes well laid on. And you will be confined in chains on quarter rations until it is considered that you have learnt your lesson. I wish you hadn't done that, Bellamer. I hope nothing happens to you till I want it to happen. Mr. Foster, you will count the strokes. Mr. Amazine, you will carry out your orders. Stand back. One. Two. Three. Four. I have started recording. It's very casual because I mix it all afterwards. I just wanted to let you know. That's it is what George Stevens said. It's all in the mixing after. Well, it's one of the one of the many things George Stevens and I have in common. <laughs> when I saw you talk at Larry Edmonds bookshop about mm-hmm. your book, at the beginning you said that the publishers you kind of got the idea that the publishers wanted you to do something about Mia and Woody but you really fell into 
uh, an ex- exploration of John Farrow, which is what I really want to get into here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first thought of this book, conceived of the idea for this book, um, the Mia Woody thing was um, contradictory in my head. It was I was ambivalent because I didn't want to go to the Mia Woody fiasco, but I realized that until I added that onto the story of John Farrow, I would not have a really complete biography, nor would I have the recognition factor, since uh, talking about John Farrow is, as I did with George Stevens and Raoul Walsh, bringing up the dead in the sense that there had not been any biography of any of these directors. Okay, so I, but I knew that John Farrow was going to be a real problem because people don't, in general, except for film people like us weirdos, no, people are not interested in reading about directors. They're interested in reading about tabloid stuff. So I knew I had to put together the two together as bookends, but I also knew that in between was where I would have a lot of fun because it was the story of a couple of generations of a very tragic family. I had done that much research to know that when I started. So um, I'm not sure what the question is anymore, but um, no, I didn't want to um, highlight the Mia Woody issue, but my publisher wanting to sell more books wanted that. And so we had a push-pull kind of thing going on. And they actually uh, asked me to restructure the book after I got it into them so that it would be more um, about Woody and Mia, which I, you know, did as much as I could bear because I don't want to write tabloid stuff. And um, it's just been a push-pull. Pull. It's it's been a, a ambivalence and an, amb- an ambiguous kind of um, project because the thing you don't really want to go over once again because it's been gone over for thirty years is the thing that you need to go over, <laughs> so right. to speak. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I did. I did. I I started the book with that which I didn't want to at the beginning, but I said, okay, to them, yes, I would, because that will pull people in. So I started with the story or the the, uh, the accusations that Mia threw at Woody, which is what the public wanted. I don't know what public that would be for this book. We didn't know yet. But um, I also tried to make my publisher realize that what they said they didn't get the first time around was what they actually did get, which was to know Mia, you have to know John Farrow, the father. And so I went back again that in, that, in that kind of same door, only a bigger door, kind of, so to speak. A bigger door about Mia and Woody. So, But all of that to get to the family, not just Mia and Woody. Well, I, that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up first. Mm-hmm. People who have listened to this podcast a lot know that I am, uh, one of, am I, well, I'm a, I'm a, I've always been a supporter of Woody Allen's films, and I am someone who is critical of the HBO documentary and the sort of one-sided Pharaoh take on, on that whole story, and have been a proponent of listening to what Moses Farrow has to say and allowing Sun Yi to speak for herself instead of having all these people speaking for her. So I have been aware of your book mostly before I saw you at Larry Edmonds and then got the book and read it. I had mostly been aware of your book through the community of people who are critical of the let's say the white pharaoh's take on as you call it the fiasco. And so well, okay, yeah. I just want to say so mm-hmm. I, that's how I, I had started I, about a year ago I started seeing your book floating around and people posting about it. Oh, the pharaohs the, we're going to start hearing about the real darkness of the pharaoh family. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um which you well, are part, 
part of the problem with with this how should I say publication is that they have the publisher uh, pushed back the publication date like four times. So it's been an issue of people waiting and waiting and nothing came out. <laughs> a lot of orders were canceled because they didn't want to wait anymore. So now we're pushing to get that back up. I am anyway. Um, but yes, I'm glad to hear that there was discussion of it. Um, I tried as much as I could, which is kind of impossible. I was really just trying to get to what was going on behind the story. The story that, that Mia told was really a, a story to, that she may have not understood was covering up what the real story was, which was why did she make these accusations and what kind of psychological uh, life um, trauma had she gone through that created, I think, these accusations. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, and that's why okay. I, I have to say, so I came to this book and came to your talk with the interest that your lowest common denominator publicist's view of the audience would be coming with was like, I want to know, like, I want to, I got the sense that your book was critical of Pharaoh and would be critical of her story. And I was coming for that. And then you started talking about this director, John Farrow. And you, and I, you yeah. mentioned the big clock, which I have always loved. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, sure. I, well, and then it still, I was like, okay, I really want to talk with this woman. I want to talk with her about Woody and mm-hmm. Mia, but I'll do the research and I'll watch the John Farrow films. And then I started watching mm-hmm. his films and I was like, holy cow. This, mm, I mean, yeah. beyond, and again, like, and even on the first film, I was like, okay, th- I'm going to learn about the sinister nature of John Farrow. And we'll get into that. But aside from all of that, wow, what a filmmaker. What films? Yes. So yes. dark, so complex. But not everyone would agree with you. And Ooh. one of the funny, one of the interesting major ideas behind this book is why has he been forgotten? You know, what someone this visionary or this disturbed, which is basically the same thing with him, um, why is he missing in action from film history because I saw the documentary that the two uh, Australian uh, directors did on Pharaoh. I learned about it when I was just starting, you know, to research this book and I learned about their documentary um, and I was talking with them for a while and they were trying to bring him back, you know, um, to the history, the discussion. Uh, about film history. And that film is Hollywood's Man in the Shadows? Yeah, now it hasn't okay. really been seen by a lot of people out here. It hasn't really been seen a lot, period, because it, it um, came out during COVID and it was premiered at uh, Il Cinema Ritrovato, which is a great, you know, festival, but it's in Bologna and not every, you know, not the general public doesn't pay attention to it. It's for film buffs only, uh, very serious, uh, you know, uh, festival, but not well known outside uh, the circle. Um, so it was there, and I was absolutely, you know, dying to see it. And um, I got a hold of the uh, two filmmakers' uh, contact info through Guy Bore, who is the um, who runs the uh, festival in Bologna. But anyway, so I learned about the documentary on Pharaoh, and I also read, um, oh gosh, Chris, Chris Fujiwara's uh, doc, uh, review of it, and he said, mm, very interesting, but it doesn't really tell you enough. So I thought, well, maybe I can get there and find out what it doesn't tell you. Okay, so there is a documentary, yes, but no one really has seen it. But you've seen it. Yeah, I did. I got a copy. I won't say how. That's that's fine. <laughs> but I'm curious, so do you feel like it touched... Because your book definitely delves into that. Did, when you saw it, did you agree that 
there was still there was plenty of John Farrell oh, yeah. story to tell. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because the the point of the documentary was to celebrate him or to make him known. They're not going to include things that I would include because I was trying to get to the unconscious, you know, <laughs> material in this family. Right. And they weren't trying to do that. They had a bigger job. Well, they had a not a bigger, but they had the job of saying, hey, there's this guy named John Farrell. You don't know about him, so let us tell you. But I think that even though they gathered everyone they could, I don't think you really, well, you know that John Farrell exists, but you don't really know what the darkness is. They kept saying there was darkness, but they didn't say what it was. Now, don't forget, his son was in that documentary, the one who eventually went to prison. Right. So let's let's get into some of the stuff that you're because you're referring to stuff I want the audience to know. So let's let's start with a little bit of some biography on John Farrow. You know, I mean, obviously, if you want to understand, know his full biography, you should read the book. You can't. You can't. really. Yeah, you can read the book. But the problem with John Farrow is that he made up everything or was the only one who talked about it, um, who talked about his history or anything like that. So, and with directors, as you know, you can't trust them. (laughs) So, um, there are some facts that I did find out that I trust. And that was through, you know, research and the fact that he was born in, um, Dublin, oh my God, that he was born near Sydney in 1904, and that his father abandoned the family and put the wife, John Farrell's mother, into, um, well, I guess you would say a mental institution, because she showed signs of postpartum depression, which in those days was, you know, not understood. And she um, eventually died in that institution without ever having met her child. And so he went his whole life uh, having to create whatever it was that was a context for his life. And I think that's where he got into trouble and couldn't get along with people because he had no models. He had no no older, you know, folk, no 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 clan telling him or teaching him anything. So he was basically on his own. He was raised by an aunt who he doesn't mention. He left or ran off when he was 15 to join the Merchant Marine and and was um, alone from then on. So then on the other hand, you go, how much of this should I believe? He's a great writer. <laughs> so... You don't ever know. You can't know. But you hope that you get some of the facts. So as far as some of the facts, once he gets to Hollywood, the documentation begins can be a little bit more verifiable. So when, yeah. when does he get to Hollywood and how does he get into being a director? Well, how he got to being a Well, he got to Hollywood in, I believe, around 1923. Nine, wait, just when films were starting to talk, it was in around the mid-20s, maybe a year or two after. You can't really be clear on that, but you can see that he's starting to get um, noticed or written about in the late 20s. Okay, he, he starts out as a technical advisor, having been on the sea um, and knowing a lot about, uh, I guess, ships. He be becomes a technical advisor for DeMille, Cecil B. DeMille, but desires very much not to be an actor, which it was suggested that he tried to do, but to be a writer and eventually a director. So he first begins writing intertitles for silent films just as they're on their way out, and then he starts writing scripts, good ones, and he gets noticed, and that's how he started. Yeah. And what would you say was his heyday as a director? Heyday? Yeah, like when he was, like, there was yeah. a point when he was a very successful Hollywood director. Uh-huh. I would say um, 
it's a long span, actually. It, I would say the early 40s through the late 40s through 90s. Well, actually, it went on through the early 50s, too, you know, with um, a woman, uh, his kind of woman. Uh, so I would say probably the 40s were his heyday when he did his best work. By the 50s, he was already being kind of mm, disliked <laughs> because people had worked with him long enough to know that he was very difficult to work with and, um, you know, he wasn't getting as many offers. He was not really with any studio like other directors could have been. Well, let me say, he was not... He was not like Walsh, who spent 30 years at Warner Brothers. He was not like Stevens, who spent many years at um, at uh, RKO. He was all over the place. And because the Academy Library was not really available to me when I was researching this book, I have never been able to see an actual uh, production log, which is how a researcher really finds out what went on on the set, okay, which is the bread and butter of doing research is to find the daily production logs on a film and the correspondence between the director and a studio, okay. Um, I was not um, able to see any of that. So uh, it was tough. It was very tough. But I, you know, had to work through the Internet and also... um, the Academy was able to send me things, but their collection of John Farrow uh, papers is very small. Because he wasn't making, he was getting a reputation in the, in Tinseltown, but he wasn't recording. None of it was really being recorded. The way, like, if you worked at Warner Brothers, you knew that you'd live in history forever because Warner Brothers believed in writing everything down. Nothing was to be said. It was to be written down in a memo. So you got a great history and a paper trail of that studio. But a lot of other studios didn't do that. Plus, um, Pharaoh seems to have disappeared from paperwork. And I can't tell you why. And I can't say how much because I didn't get to see all the paperwork. That must have been very frustrating. Horrible. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> and you, again, you're alluding to this, but there are reasons why he might have worked hard to remain in the shadows. He was a uh, <clears throat> a determined. Uh, the 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 word that uh, the the kindly word for it is womanizer. Uh, uh-huh. the, um, the modern word for it is predator. Um, he was he he uh-huh. sounds like he he lived up to some of the worst cliches about directors yeah. using their position to uh, satisfy yeah. their sexual desires he, he, with. Actresses. He didn't have the he didn't have the casting couch in the office. But he had um, his own ways of, how should I say it, terrifying women he worked with. Yes, and if you watch his films, it's easy, knowing that, it's easy to project that knowledge onto his directorial style. There is something particularly, uh, there's there's a sadistic streak that runs through his well, films. Well, you look at his... Su- you, can, you can just start with his subject matter. You can just start with that. It's usually his, I think, better films, things he didn't... Well, he was always for hire. He was never... He never reached the point um, of a George Stevens who could say, I want to do this film and I will be in charge of it and it was my idea. He wasn't that kind of director. He was more a gun for hire which many were, and he became distinctive, but it didn't really help his position in the system. Um, but you you can still see what his character is in, in any film he did, because that's always 
as Mamoulian said, oh, the film is always the director's autobiography. He leaves traces of himself without meaning to. Okay, um, which is his the real truth about who he is or was. And you can see by the subject matter that his main characters are generally, how should we say, untrustworthy, evil, um, malicious, <laughs> things like that. Hmm. And you think after a while, well, wow, okay, that's got to say something about him. Because even even though someone like uh, Robert Mitchum, who is a very sympathetic character in Where Danger Lives, he is knocked out unconscious and spends half the film unconscious, like falling out of the frame. I mean, it, it's a very unusual film. And sometime you really need to find it. I don't know how, but because um, I can't think anymore after this book. But it's, a, it's an unusual book. But if you look at the other um, films, you've got someone very prominent um, who's even like Ray Milan, the devil himself. Right. You know? uh, and in that and, you consider, like, I, when you, it's funny when you say that there's the, there's, that his lead characters are, because there, there are it, it's as I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to think of like like uh, like Edward G. Robinson in The Night Has a Thousand Eyes. He doesn't seem like he's a particularly he's a guy who's struggling with uh, with a okay. I'm, a I, I take back malicious. I will say also um, someone who is mysterious, um, maybe unknown, and for sure tortured. Yes, and that Robert Mitchum certainly is in. Uh, where danger lives. Tortured might be a good word to be up there with malicious. <laughs> but you look at the the atmosphere of his films, and it's uh, dark, very yeah, dark. Yeah, it's dark. It's it it, it it was surprisingly dark. I was uh, last night. Of I was I've been in the middle of a John Farrow uh, sort of <laughs> film mini film festival, and last night I watched mm. Five Came Back. And the ending uh, of that moving yeah. movie, I couldn't believe mm -hmm. it when they went. The, I'm not going to give you a spoiler. It's, no, no, it's, don't. It's written mm -hmm. by first of all, it's written by uh, Dalton Trumbo and Nathaniel West. So there's some darkness written mm -hmm. into that. Oh, script. that tells you a little something. <laughs> and, Nathaniel West alone is trouble. Mm. Both of them, and and uh, you just, uh, yeah, it phenomenal, like yeah. a really. That is a really, really special film. I, I, I want, I, I want to put a little pin in recommending that to people. Yeah, it's. I only it's found it as available. Of, so let me just say, it's. I only found it available yeah. streaming online on the uh -huh. Internet Archive. I can't. I haven't found it okay. anyplace else, but it is online and people can watch it. And it features. Yeah. Uh, a serious performance by a young Lucille Ball, and <laughs> it yeah. is. It is just one heck of a film. I, we can talk more about it, but. I just want to give a quick rep recommendation. And he did a remake in ten years later or something with the I always love Beulah Bondi, who's in it, hmm. uh, called Back from Eternity. But that had, that I believe is one of the first, if not the first, of the airplane disaster genre. You think about it. I mean, I don't. Let's see. That was thirty nine. I think it was 39, right? I can't, there's too many films floating in my head. But um trying to think of what, I, I remember researching this. And yes, it was the first of its, you know, genre in that there's an actual plane crash and you see people actually trying to survive. Yeah, guy fly, get guy falls out of the plane and during the mm -hmm. action sequences. His action sequences also have a real... uh I don't know intensity and a kineticism that mm -hmm. I don't think is uh, is common for the era. Um, really, how do you mean? Well, just like while I'm thinking about now, I'm thinking about his kind of woman, like a, mm -hmm. the way the editing of the way some of the fights are. There's just a mm -hmm. it's it's very quick. It's almost feels like the film is speeded up at certain points. It just has this. Mm -hmm. Uh, it reminds me uh, a little bit of Scorsese's sort of kinetic editing style. Mm. And, well, you it's, know, yeah, it's tough. That, that script was a mess. 
believe, and that wasn't Pharaoh's fault. That was just that that script. I don't know what that film was. I love it, but I can't tell you what it was doing. It was everywhere, and it didn't make sense a lot. I thought. Um, I think that's kind of what I liked about it. I I ended up I had to watch that film several times, and it has be, now it's become sort of a meditative thing. Like I just I'm hanging out in these beach locations with Mitchum and uh, Jane Russell and <laughs> right. Mr. Howell, a pastiche, and, yeah. a pastiche, having a good time with with all these scenes and just pretending you're there. Yeah, sort of them. like a beat yeah, the that's devil what it is. Kind of good point. Very good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Now. I want to new kind, I, you discovered a new form. Yeah. I want to ask well, you... Well, you named it. Yeah, go ahead. A, a question. So I noticed in His Kind of Woman, there's the Vincent Price character who seems like he's playing a, a sort of a, an insulting riff on an Errol Flynn type. And then in Five Came Back, there's the, the pretty rich boy, the Patrick Knowles character. Uh, oh, I love him. Who yeah. also... He's he's definitely the villain of the piece, and he has sort of a, a very Errol Flynn quality. And as I'm, mm. you know, I, and I'm watching this, and I'm trying to fill, I'm thinking, okay, John Farrow is fancies himself sort of the the great playboy, the great Hollywood playboy, or at least he's he's out. I, I assume competing with other great Hollywood playboys. And as I'm watching this, I'm wondering, does he just hate Errol Flynn? And does he does he real have does he really have a a thing about wanting to take that guy down? Because it seems like, yeah, it seems like that in, I don't, in these two Here's films. an interesting point about Pharaoh, and this goes to his films also. I don't know, and I don't, I don't know how conscious he was or how premeditated, well, I should say how conscious he was of his, of what he was doing and what the effects were. I think he did. He just did. And he wasn't always, or maybe never, really having, uh, trying to do anything premeditatedly, I mean, consciously. He just had this thing he had to do with women, and I don't think he gave it a thought. I think it just was something he had to do. And I think knowing Flynn as much as I do working with Walsh, Flynn was very conscious of his reputation, of his look, um, of his um, persona. I don't think Pharaoh thought that, ever thought about that at all. I think he was trying to hide from anything public. I guess, to me, in my experience of guys, men who are predatory towards women are also, I find, to be very territorial and um, bullying Towards men, mm, they oh, see that was as him a potential. To the so that's why I kind of think there's something mm. about this, you know, not you know, taking swipes at Errol Flynn that isn't so much of a thing. It's not. It seems more like akin to like he's not really thinking about. It. I was like, oh yeah, fuck that guy. Fuck you know, I'm gonna take down or mm. that kind of guy. I hate that kind of guy. Those guys who think Errol, they're swashbucklers but are really just hands. Yeah. which is Errol what the Flynn Vincent was Price not. Character. Errol Flynn was, as I know it, not a nasty guy. Well, I, but even like the Vincent Price character and like who yeah. wants to be a soldier and like because my understanding of Errol Flynn was that he also had like he he saw himself as a real adventurer, as a real soldier. Yes, he did. And he was. Yeah. And he was not sinister. And you're talking about a Vincent Price who is wonderfully sinister mm-hmm. and could be, although in real life he was anything but, you know, but he was like a, a fine cook. <laughs> I always wished I could be a fly on the wall when Vincent Price and his wife, um, oh God, what's her name? Coral Brown gave dinner parties. Do you know who Coral Brown was? I do not know who Coral Brown was. Okay, did me you in. ever see Auntie Mame? Yeah. The film. Yeah. She played Vera Charles. Oh. British. Yeah. And she was also in a film, oh boy, about Alice, the woman who, the young girl in Alice in Wonderland. It was a real story about Barry. Was it Barry? No, no. Was it? Well, anyway, I can't remember the name of the film, but she 
Carl Brown was an outrageously colorful character in real life. And she and Vincent were um, probably shields for each other. But, but they had this very lavish, very colorful um, social life. And they were very well liked. And I always wish I could have been at one of their parties <laughs> because they were characters. But getting back to Vincent, he could be sinister. I don't ever see Errol Flynn doing that. <laughs> in in, in uh, his kind of woman, it's I think it's a great comedic performance. It is. Yes. It actually what it would also reminds me of, and it's a much later performance. But he really reminds me of Z Man in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls with him constantly quoting Shakespeare <laughs> and like the pretension, like the way he sort of floats through that movie as a, as like a massive absurdity is one of, mm. is one of the things that makes it sort of a, a real fun, like that gives it that yeah. beat the devil kind of feeling of like, okay, they're, mm, they're just right. having fun with this. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, Jane Russell well, I became friends with Jane Russell when I was doing the Walsh book, and I have to say, I've never met anyone like her. She was politically, you know, the other side of the world from me. She was very conservative, and, I mean, it it didn't matter to me at all in talking, in the way we talked to each other, because she was the most down-to-earth, mother-earth woman I have ever met, and a character. She grew up with either four or five brothers in the San Fernando Valley. And by the time she went to, into the movies, nobody could topple her about, for any reason. You know, She'd seen it and done it all, even though she was very religious. She was, in a way, a contradiction, but what a character. What a wonderful woman. And she was so perfect for uh, Walsh's films, for this film, his kind of woman, um, there was, you know, she, she had was one of the few women who didn't have trouble with uh, John Farrow because she just shined him on, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay, like let's just get done with this. Well, once you've <laughs> conquered Howard Hughes, I think <laughs> right. John Farrow. Well, he was no, <laughs> he was on her side. He well, that's was what I mean. Not hurting her. Yeah, that's what I mean. He, he came to her aid many times, but <laughs> also did nothing and kept her under wraps as much as he could. So I actually I was curious when I saw Howard Hughes's name come up as a the, as the producer of his kind of woman, and again projecting what you've what I've learned about John Farrow from your book and from your talk that again you'd find there might be a kinship between these two predatory filmmakers, mm. uh, and I was curious did he did Farrow work with Hughes beyond that film or was that the only not film? really no. Not really. And no. it was that kind of the case with Pharaoh? He'd get hired for by people, he'd do one gig with them, and then they'd say, that was enough, John Pharaoh? I wish I could tell you what the pattern was, but there was nothing available to me, which is, like, as you know, frustrating, as you said, because I couldn't get a sense. You can get such a great sense of who this person is if you see the paper trail. And I didn't have a paper trail, and partly it was because of COVID, but partly is because it was because, or still is, because he, there is isn't one on him much. It's like someone came and wiped it all out, and I don't know who. <laughs> now, when you say that, no, no, what I think happened is he made very, very sure not to be um, present. Um, in the future, if you know what I'm saying. He was hiding all of the time. At the same time, which is so bizarre, that he was making these wonderful films and that people were still hiring him, given you know, what was going on on his film sets. Now, if you saw Two Years Before the Mast, yeah. you remember my little anecdote yeah, would you mind sharing it with uh, with our listeners? Oh, well, this, okay. I got this on tape from uh, an interview a friend of mine had done with Howard De Silva. So De Silva described it, and it was, um, so I don't know who was flogging who, but one character was flogging another, and Pharaoh was watching, and he was just probably so involved in the joy of watching this kind of masochism 
or I should say sadism, well, either way, that he didn't even realize that the flogging had gone on too long and the poor actor's back was literally ripped apart. And he finally caught wind of what was going on in the real world, came back to the planet and said, I'm so sorry. Um, I was just enjoying it so much, watching (laughs) you getting ripped open. (laughs) Uh, well, that Basically, would have been uh, William Bendix doing the that's right, you're right, the flogging, that's right. and I and it wouldn't have been the the but flogging there were two of Alan floggings. Ladd, there, yeah, not okay, the Alan yeah. Ladd flogging, the earlier one. No, yes. So there you go. I mean, someone who's like lost in his unconscious and just not aware of where his world and his desires are crashing into um, another one which is the social world, planet, the planet Earth, you know, not aware that he is not part of the other world. He's, he's like in his unconscious. And that's how I see his films. You could look at all of the major ones that I mentioned in the book, and I wasn't, um, I had to take out a lot of films in this book, uh, you know, a lot of information. The the publisher just thought it was too heavy on on the side of Pharaoh. Uh, so th- there there are very few films I actually talk about. I think like seven or eight, maybe in any detail at all. And um, but if you look at them, they have a a kind of author an author there. They have you know I'm big on the auteur theory. They they all look to have similarities of some kind of unconscious pain or a darkness that somebody wants to hide. Or maybe we're in the part where the the darkness is being hidden, the demons are being hidden. Although, in like, just even in that one scene, there's the ship's mate who's counting off the blows. Mm-hmm. Eleven. And he's just, yeah, tw- and he's smiling, <laughs> and there, and so there is a way that the like we have we have Pharaoh saying there is, I as I'm showing you that there is a joy that people feel in watching this kind of thing that <laughs> right. I relate, you know that ma- he's not necessarily necessarily saying I relate to it, but by filming it the way he does, he is saying that. Now I was not able to see the actual script which is another thing mm-hmm. that is frustrating because when you see the script and you see the changes in the finished film, you learn a lot about the director because even though the writer could have been in on it, the director okayed it. You know, it's still his doing. And I was not able to see the script of this, and that was uh, a big loss. So I don't. So it, it makes everything more kind of nebulous you don't know the source of um you know the happiness is it in the writer's work is it in pharaoh's work and the only way you can know is to watch a lot of pharaoh's work and see how that kind of shows up it it definitely sets up this guy as a villain Mm -hmm. and he is treated as Mm -hmm. a villain throughout uh, but I think it, so. It's it's very it's as you say. It's stealthy. It's not someone saying I'm going to put myself on screen and make a statement. It's more like, like in the anecdote you describe, I can't help my joy at this, not and even I can't that help much. my sympathy yeah. with this character. I'm in. It's I'm, not even that yeah. much awareness. Right. It's, it's just he, capturing. Not even enough awareness to say, to say that. <laughs> it's like being in it. And you're getting it. You're the you're the spectator. You're viewing it. You're seeing it. And you're seeing this guy. You're seeing this man. And then you put it together with the the horror that he could cause, could stir up at at home with his kids. And you get an interesting picture, which I won't go into detail about. Read the book. Yeah, the details are in the book. But there also is, you talk in the book about his hypocritical commitment to Catholicism, like a, Mm -hmm. like a, like over the top, like an an, an overzealous, obsessive, obsessive obsessive relationship with Catholicism at the same time Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. he was 
obsessive <laughs> about of chasing what prostitutes you and beating his kids and whatnot, yeah, uh, or controlling the people in his life through violence, yeah. or just right. taking pleasure in hurting other people. I don't think it yeah. was conscious pleasure. Well, like, can you talk a little bit about the the story? There's a li- there's a brief anecdote where he ta- he he tries to get an actress to allow I, him to. I think he, that should be in the book. I think that should be okay. In the book, so there, if you don't mind. but there yeah. there is a there is a sadistic there is a conscious yes. sadism to this person. Yes, and there is also an episode in the book where he wasn't very nice to one to the woman he really loved, Lila Lee at the Garden of Allah, which I'm still not 100% comfortable with that, but there are too many parts of it that sound familiar. Um, In other words, no names were mentioned in Sheila Graham's account of that evening in her book about the Garden of Allah, but it was just too close to other things I knew. It It was like one of those, it had to be. It had to be. And then there's also the episode where he tries to kill himself and Lila Lee is there. Now that I, that was in an autobiography by, uh, written by another actress. So, you know, that, that's the problem with, with writing biographies of directors. You don't ever really know who's saying the truth or who, or if the truth is ever really available, but you got to go with it. You know, you, you're telling this really interesting story about people who influence us so much. But before we go, I like, um, in a little bit, I, I want to go back to what you first said, what you asked me about my working on someone like John Farrow because what happened oh what happened to you when you watched his films was that you discovered this really uh visionary well a lot of people would say no but i say yes yeah, visionary director and we never mentioned really how wonderful his writing is there's yeah there's this it, it's something that he he uses writing visually in his films yes yes and if you uh, there's an early film called the bad one uh, with Dolores Del Rio, another one of his conquests, but then everybody was in love with her. <laughs> she was the love of everybody, every you know, every director's life. And I'd love to do a book on her, but who knows? She, uh, he he. In those days, they were they were doing the. They would have a write, Someone would write a book, a novel, a little novelization of the script of the film. Mm-hmm. You know. They're doing that nowadays somewhat, but I'm not sure as much. Uh, so there was a book called The Bad One, which was at first, before anything, a novel by him. And then it became out as a, a little novel from the film. And the writing is amazing. And I have some of it in the book. I, I was knocked out by the way this, this man could use language. So just there's these these amazing contradictions of like a visionary yeah, exactly. director who doesn't respect the format of filmmaking, a, yeah. a devout Catholic who's also a violent whoremongering sadist. Uh, there's a like he's a he's a brilliant writer, but mostly he's a, mostly he's he's known for his images. So when when Chris uh, Fujiwara, I believe. I said, um, reviewed the documentary. He said something that really set me off thinking, and that was that his talent or whatever you call it is much bigger than just filmmaking. It's bigger than the cinema. And I thought to myself, what could it be? It's bigger than the cinema. It's bigger than Catholicism. It's got to be the unconscious because that's the only thing that's bigger. And that's where I had to put him, that he operates out of that dark place that is so un- that you're so unaware of in your conscious life. But what I want to say more than anything, and you were onto this also, is that you discover this this director who you have to see ultimately as tragic, so talented, so demonized that he's a tragic. Well, hero, and if you want to use that word, you know, um, 
And that's why I wanted so much at the end of when I did the acknowledgments, which came at, I wrote them at the end, um, to see a picture of John Farrow with his family, which was would never happen in a picture where he's actually vulnerable and part of the family. Because if you look at the pictures, and there are many, many publicity photos of this family, of this Hollywood royalty, he is never looking at the Crammer directly. He's kind of somewhere else. His eyes are like somewhere else, almost empty. And what I wanted so much was to be able to flash, flesh him out, and I just couldn't because there was nothing available to me um, to make him sympathetic. He wasn't my father. He was Mia's father. She loved him, and it was even more tragic that she loved him, and then he betrayed her so many times. Because I know he loved her. I don't know if I'm getting too weepy, but... No, no. Well, this brings me... I want to bring this back around, because there is another book that is out this season that is sort of making the rounds in the Mia and Woody-verse all about this, what do we do with the art of monstrous men by Claire... Mm -hmm. Diderot, mm-hmm. I don't, mm-hmm. and I, and it feels like John Farrow would, uh, would fit. I think one of the critiques of that book is that it's, uh, it's very first, it, well, it's subjective and, uh, in some cases, you know, seems entirely wrong. But the idea of what do we do with the art of monstrous, let's say, people. I've had a sense that it was Woody in there somehow. Oh, yeah, no, it's definitely, no. It is mostly about someone who is a fan of Woody Allen and Roman Polanski and other, and who uh, Bill Cosby, that they lumping them all together, and other other people, let's see, Picasso. Who, I'm sorry, who was the third? Did you, uh, they, my dog was barking. Uh, Bill Cosby, Woody Allen, Roman oh, Polanski, oh, oh, William oh, Burroughs. Yeah. I'm reading the yeah, Sid yeah, Vicious... Yeah. Ezra Pound, yeah. Norman Mailer, Pablo Picasso. Ezra Pound, oh my God. I Lead Belly, Miles thesis. Davis, Phil Spector, all these, you know. Miles Davis? <laughs> yes. Oh no. Uh, but I think, first of all, I'm curious. So you, you're not that familiar with that book, but I, I, it feels like your I, book I looked, and it I, are... I looked at the review of it at yeah. the, in The New Yorker. There was just something on it in The New Yorker. And at that point, I thought... I don't know. I don't, I'm cat enough of this. And I, I put it down, and I thought, though, that Woody was in there in spirit, if nothing else. I didn't know Oh, no, they know definitely, the she definitely, he's, they, they okay. put his picture on okay. a lot of the reviews of this. It's, it's unfortunate, okay. because I don't feel like he belongs in this, but... No, I agree. Whether or not I agree with that book or the way it's being promoted, this, I think this idea speaks to the conflict of approaching John Farrow is mm-hmm. like this guy by all accounts really was a, a monstrous uh, maybe in the truest sense of the word like he was not he was a he wasn't he didn't make himself a monster he was a he was born into a monstrous life mm-hmm. well he had to create his life and he frankensteined himself <laughs> yeah basically yeah. um yeah so how so then that's the question is how do we approach john farrow the director divorced from John Farrow the man, or can we? I wish we could, but I don't know if John Farrow is ever going to be out there enough that we have to, or even that we think about it. I wish there were. I know that there is a uh, collection of, of uh, films, a, um, a Blu-ray collection of his five of his films coming out. Oh, really? Um, I, don't, I don't know when. Uh, I don't know who the company is. Might be Warner Brothers. I'm not sure. I heard something about it. I haven't investigated it yet, but I certainly hope. I mean, yeah, that you could say the man was a monster, but I sure hope people get to know more about his films. Absolutely. And I have to say that this book does not. It 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 does support Woody, but it also is not a, a case against Mia. She didn't. Um, she didn't create this. She inherited all this. Yeah, no, th- there's cycles within cycles. Yeah, you know, and, and let's not get into the patriarchy and all that, you know, but patriarchy and, and Catholicism, what partners, you know? Oh, yeah. 
We can, you know, we can get into the patriarchy if you want. It's okay. I'm, no, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy but, to sell out my sex. No, um, but I have to say <laughs> okay. that it's horrible to me that Woody Allen, he may have gotten a reputation as being um, hard to deal with on the set, but he is one of our brilliant directors, and it's very sad that, you know, he will go down in the history books as a possible child molester rather than the artist he was, is, Yeah. You know? It's very sad, and it, which is why I find this whole issue so fascinating, because this could, as I say in the book, this could be anybody's family, you know, but the fact that it happened here, it's not a Hollywood story. It became a Hollywood story, but it's not really. It just, it's a human, you know, human sadness. It's a human, it's a generational human story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and there was something on NPR the other day about um, post-traumatic stress syndrome and, and what it does to kids who are constantly um, exploited or constantly exposed to either mental or physical abuse. And believe me, or trauma. Trauma was my whole idea for this book. It's one of my fab, my most you know interesting topics, I think. Um, anyone's interesting topic. It's my favorite topic to talk about trauma because it is the thing, as I use Kathy Carruth in the book, it is the thing that binds us all together, trauma. And so I use a little of her book. I try not to make it too difficult because it is theoretical and stuff. So I just use a little of it because it's so... It's fascinating to me how history is, as she says, how we are all implicated in each other's traumas. You know, you like jump into history because your narrative about your trauma, which is probably not available as the real truth, autobiography by nature, you can't ever have the truth, but um, how that ties us to everyone else. And we all jump into the history pool together. by our traumas and how they relate. I know that's a big kind of gnarly topic, but that's what all of my work has been about. And I've never been able to use it as much as I could with this book. I did a little of it with the Stevens book about the shock of, uh, as is well known about the American journalists who walked into the camps and were so overwhelmed and shocked by what they saw in the in the uh, the camps that had been liberated in the Holocaust, the concentration camps, that and this is this woman's theory is that you walk in, something so horrible hits you, it's like a a wound. You have so much information that's hitting you at one time. That's how powerful a trauma is that you cannot take it all in. It has to be put somewhere else, in the unconscious. It's too much information. You can't survive it if you know it all. It has to be put away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see that's like John Farrow's second week on the planet. Exactly. Losing his father and his mother. Yeah. And that's too much info for that little brain. That's too much information yes. to take in, and it exactly. spills out so much that it's and, still spilling yes. on us through his through his kids. And for and for yeah, and for Mia. Yeah. So um, it goes on and on. And for the next generation of those kids, for, for, yeah. and for all of us who grew up watching it, like the trauma just mm-hmm. spills in to all of us. And it's just, yeah, it is, it is, it's a staggering thing to think about when you think about the origins of trauma. It's just, it's just being alive. It's being alive. Yeah, exactly. You get it. It's just um, being Kids, you know, when people say to me, well, kids, they learn how to survive things. <laughs> and I go, please. Some of them have to learn to have 13 personalities in order to survive. Yeah, they survive, but they're, they're self-destructive and damaged. But they survive physically. They're still here. Yeah. But to say that, that kids are okay, they'll survive. The kids are not okay. <laughs>
Gotta choose Moses or Dylan. That's right, it's either Dylan or Moses. Don't fight, you can look him up all you like and make up your own prognosis about Woody and Mia. Mia and Woody. And then we cry out collectively. What about Soon Yi? She's married happily as can be. While Sinatra's baby's on network TV. Some twisted sequel to that film by Polanski. Shot in the Just had to wait For Dylan and Moses For Moses and Dylan For Ronan and Suni For Suni and Rona Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Thanks for listening to this episode. I really do hope you'll check out some films from John Farrow. They're great. And he is a far better example of the need to separate the art from the artist than Woody Allen is. I recently participated in a really great group conversation with several other film podcasters in which we all shared an episode of our podcast. In each case, everyone in the group listened to the episode the podcaster shared and gave notes appreciative and critical on the work. When I shared my offering, it was our episode about Deconstructing Harry. As alternatives, I shared our episodes about The Front and our episode about Wrongness, where we compared the media-driven campaigns against Charlie Chaplin, Sinead O'Connor, and Woody Allen. When it came time to get my notes from the group, it turns out two of my fellow film podcasters chose to listen to episodes having nothing to do with Woody Allen. Mine was one of the last podcasts shared, and this was the first time anything like this had happened in the group. So I brought it up to the group in the context of anti-Semitism, and surprisingly, most of my fellow podcasters were open to what I had to share. But there were still some who were clearly hostile to Woody Allen and his films, and would refuse to watch them or even engage a podcast about them. And this has been troubling and disappointing to me in the very place that inspired this podcast in the first place. 
the world is wrong about Woody Allen. And I'm feeling more and more called to make this case because the ways it's wrong about Woody Allen tell us a lot more about where we're at right now as a society than it does about Woody Allen. Despite the fact that he is legally innocent and that the media-driven case against him rests on believing only the white members of the Farrow family and ignoring the testimonies of Moses Farrow and Sun Yi Farrow and the very existence of the three deceased adoptees of Mia Farrow. Not to mention that the rhetoric directed at Allen is full of anti-Semitic tropes and distortions of reality. Many who consider themselves people of conscience even film podcasters who are supposed to be curious and thoughtful about the history of cinema are willing to ignore the most important and successful independent American filmmaker of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, featuring some of the greatest female film performances in that period. I'll tell you, people, I'm tempted to do a whole season on Woody Allen and how wrong, ahistorical, racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic, and anti-cinema, the case against him is. I'm not there yet. It's a lot to take on. But I think it just may be the most important conversation about film that we aren't having, precisely because we aren't having it. I have a new record to put out in the next year, so it might just be too much work, but it might be even more work not producing it because it's a conversation I need to have and my brain and my heart are exploding with it. We'll see. I don't know when I'll be back. Maybe next month, uh, maybe later. When I know more, I'll definitely let you know. Until then, please remember that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Perhaps it was a mistake, my telling her. Not if you were trying to help her. Well, I was and am. I do want to help. I want help myself. It isn't easy to live with something like this. Something that's turned me into a half-crazed recluse. Robbed me of 20 years. I try to understand it. I've read books on the occult, on divination, on sorcery, on abnormal psychology. But they haven't helped. And that's why I've told you the story. Because I thought that you, with your training, could help explain some of these things. And together, perhaps, we could do something to avert what I've seen. Do what? I don't know. If, if I could only have seen something beyond the vague picture of her lying under the stars. Radio 8-4. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers, from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.